This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Well, I don't know if, if everyone's aware, but they should be. And anyone who follows me or knows me knows I am a huge lobster roll fan, having come from Connecticut, where they invented the hot buttered lobster roll, as a matter of fact. And I believe it was either Stratford or Milford, Connecticut. But now in Portland, Oregon, and Lake Oswego, Oregon, you can get lobster rolls from Zupans on Fridays until they sell out. So get in early and order your lobster rolls um, and enjoy it. They're great. I've had it once, and uh, I would highly recommend yeah, lobster rolls. Yeah, I'm looking at this. You're looking at a quarter pound of North Atlantic lobster tossed with mayonnaise, lemon juice, herbs on a toasted brioche bun. Chris, that just, that just sounds... I have not had this yet, so I know what I'm doing this Friday. Yeah, there's there's nothing better than to start your weekend with a delicious lobster roll. Yeah. Also, something to keep in mind, and we talk about these often, are these great events happening at your local Zupans, the floral design and wine. So the, these take place at different locations, the Lake Oswego location, the Birdside location. You basically get to come in, have hands-on floral design classes, all the while sipping great hors d'oeuvres and wine. What? Well, you're, you're sipping the wine and eating the hors d'oeuvres. Right. And, uh, and anybody who knows Zupans knows that their floral department is second to none. So they carry, you know, the best flowers and they're going to have their designers show you how to best design your arrangement. So uh, and they're, they're, they have classes. Let's see. I'm going to go through some dates here. June 20th, July 25th, August. Uh, that's not in order. June 20th. July 11th, July 25th, July 25th again in different location. August 8th, August 22nd. Go online at zupans.com to see where those are and what each one features. Very nice. And while you're on the website, we should point this out, Chris. You can still go online, order your groceries online for curbside pickup. I think that's one of the things that uh, not every business in the world uh, was doing before the pandemic, but I think something that's going to exist afterwards and definitely at your local Zupan. So uh, if you're short on time and you, you know, you just want to pull up, they'll bring it out to the car, make it super easy at your local Zupans. Highly convenient. Very much so. Three locations to serve you. We've talked about nearly all of them, Burnside, Lake Oswego, and McAdam. And of course, all the information you could ever hope for about your local Zupans is found where? Of course, at Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. Well, thank you very much. Well, actually, you're Court Johnson, so that people don't get confused when you say that, that people think you're Chris from Portland Food Adventures, because you're Court Johnson from Radio Fame, and I'm Chris Angelus. And so... Um, it's good to have you here with us and everybody else. Just want to get that straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. you're you, I'm me. And, and in fact, uh, you know, when we talk about Portland food adventures, uh, you're having your own New York City food adventure right now, right? Right now, I'm doing some exploring and planning in uh, Brooklyn with my friend Peter from Andina. So we're going to do a little exploration of some Peruvian uh, Nikkei uh, food tonight and talking about some things we'd like to do in Portland and perhaps here and perhaps 
on other continents. That would be kind of fun. So right now we're just exploring it, but it's cool to be here on a beautiful, beautiful June morning in Brooklyn, New York. I just heard some sirens going, so that's something we haven't heard on the podcast before because we wouldn't hear it when we're recording in Manzanita anyway. So. No, no, uh, no I'm, I'm, I, you're hearing the sirens. I'm not hearing the sirens, but you were talking earlier. I mean, you're, you are now in a city. You were hearing some drilling. What, one of the things I love most about when I go to New York City, it, without yeah. fail, every time I'm, I'm taking a walk down the street, there's some jackhammering going on every single yeah, time. Well, there's something like a jackhammer in the apartment next door. I'm in a beautiful, beautiful Airbnb. Couldn't be nicer, but next door there's some work going on. But it's, it is, you know, it's okay. And uh, it's, I was hoping that you'd hear the sirens because I don't know if you ever, I think I told you, I suggest you watched this years ago, but I used to watch all the old Dick Cavett shows that were recorded in the late sixties and early seventies. And yeah. On all his shows, you could hear sirens outside New York City. It was awesome. They didn't give a lot of thought to uh, sound deadening in those days. So uh, anyway, one of my favorite uh, things to when I enjoy watching those a lot because of the guests, but I also love just how different things were in the 60s and 70s when things were being recorded in New York. So yeah. at any rate, that has nothing to do with what we're doing now, but it does have, a, yes, we talk about the 60s and 70s in this episode with my friend Jeff Reidebach, who went, we grew up, in, you're going to hear it in this podcast, we grew up in the same town, Darien, Connecticut, and uh, found both found our way out to Portland. He was here, what, 20, he got here in 79, so that would be 26 years before I arrived. So, um, but Jeff Reidebach now owns Homegrown Smoker, and we had him, he was on, I think, one of the first five episodes we had of the podcast back in 2014, but Homegrown Smoker is vegan barbecue, and when we had him on the podcast in 2014, vegan was just really starting to get, come on people's radars, and now, you know, I don't need to explain anything about vegan food, but I do need to say that it's way more accepted and uh, sought after than it was back then. So, and Jeff has a lot to do with that. His claim to fame is making vegan food that tastes as much like meat, as much like the, the, the stuff you and I love to eat, pastrami sandwiches, ribs, everything tastes like that. And uh, he's really awesome. He's like a mad scientist. So uh, he's really awesome at making some delicious food that people love. His restaurant does really well over in St. John's neighborhood. And in this episode, people are going to need to, we're going to hear a, quite a bit about vegan food and how that's evolved and what he's doing now. And some, he got excited this week about developing something new. We'll talk about that. But there's a big portion of the podcast that we're just really quote unquote shooting the shit about what it was like to grow up in Darien and how things were very different back then in terms of how we grew up. There was no helicopter parenting whatsoever. There were no cell phones. And as we talk about it, we grew up in a, in a town that makes Lake Oswego look like amateur hour when it comes <laughs> to privileges. So, um, so, but it was different, you know, the, 
the trappings of uh, people who were doing very well back then were very different than they are now. So, like, they, you know, there weren't gated, there weren't gated properties, and the, there weren't all the cars that you have now. You know, the most someone had was a Cadillac and maybe a BMW 2002. Right. Um, but, uh, but in Darien, your status was identified by which country club you belong to. Mm. And Jeff and I didn't go into that, but, but, um, yeah, there are three, actually four different clubs. Three were golf country clubs and another was a beach club. And depending on where you belonged, you were either old money, new money, or trying to be new money. So, um, anyway, but that has not, that has nothing to do with anything other than just an intro to our conversation where Corey, you may be interested to listen to Jeff's interest in music and how much recording he did at shows and how many recordings he has oh. in his possession. Um, some, some really cool stuff. And, you know, Jeff's always been a really big music fan and he's cool. And the, the shot I sent you as the thumbnail for the podcast, this was his second zoom conversation in you know since the pandemic started the second and his backdrop he had set up as the grateful dead logo so that was actually going to be my question when you talk about people going to concerts and recording them you automatically assume they're a deadhead uh because that really was the band that encouraged their fans to come in with their own own equipment and record the shows Right. And he did, he did quite a bit of that. And he still does. I mean, that he works really hard. He's in his, he's in his mid sixties now, or yeah, mid sixties. And he's still working, you know, it's, it's not easy work prepping at, for his restaurant, but he takes time off. And I know his recreation, uh, most of the time is going to a concert in California, uh, when he can find it. So, um, yeah, and he's just a really, really nice guy, um, like Jeff a lot. And, um, you know, anybody who is interested in um, interesting food, because what he does is not typical vegan fare, should make their way over a homegrown, over a homegrown smoker and try it. And if you're lucky enough, get into a, the same type of conversation that we did. Yes, was it yesterday? Sunday. No, 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 it was Monday. It was the day after Father's Day. So, uh, and Jeff's a father, too, father of of two, and uh, he's had his kids working for him along the way, too. So, he started out with a food cart, and now he's got a really nice brick-and-mortar restaurant over in the St. John's neighborhood. One of my favorite people, I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a while. He's been busy. And on Father's Day 2021, he agreed to uh, to talk to me the next day. So I'm I'm um, really happy about that. And I hope when everybody's done listening to this podcast, they're happy about it, too. Nice. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Portland Food Adventures. 
Ready to break out and travel to some of the world's most delicious destinations? Portland Food Adventures has space available on two trips in 2022. To Basque Country in Spain with Chef Javier Canteras of Urdaneta. Also, if you've never experienced Italy with Austria Enzyme, join Chris for the most delicious nine days in Western Sicily imaginable. Info at portlandfoodadventures.com. And by... Finex Cast Iron Cookware Company. Finex is built for those that believe details make the difference. Whether crafting cookware or cooking a meal, attention to detail can elevate the everyday into something extraordinary. Finex pays attention to detail to bring you inspiration and tools for a lifetime of meals and memories. Make the everyday extraordinary. Find out more at FinexUSA.com. Hey, nice background. <laughs> I gotta come up with something like that. The the Zoom gave me the choice. The only other time I've used Zoom. And uh let me put this on silent. This is only your second Zoom? This is my second Zoom, yeah. The oh, first man. one was with my bookkeeper about a year ago. <laughs> wow, good for you that you've been able to avoid this. I, I'm, I'm sorry to fuck I that up. Like you know, Pardon I'm me? not like you. I'm not a, a doer and a go-getter. I'm just a restaurateur who hides in the basement. Yeah, but I was thinking today, man, you're not just a restaurateur, but there aren't many guys your age that are still, you know, telling me I can't do it. It's a, it's a busy day on Monday. A lot of tell me a lot of people tell me that, but not a people not a lot that are uh, a lot of restaurateurs are telling you that. No, they are, but not not guys in their sixties like you. I oh, mean, well, that's because they're probably smart and retired. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wasn't going to give you a reason for it, but I was just telling you I don't see it very much. So at least three more years, but three more years, at least three more years oh at least so uh your job how is your job uh well we're still here yeah that's that's not answering that question a lot of folks can't say that yeah that's true it's a real it's a real tragedy uh but yeah we're still here we're open four days a week uh very small staff everybody's working 40 hours uh, and that's it until they say otherwise. And basically we're just going by what the staff wants. So you asked me before how the podcast was doing through the pandemic. And so coming out of this now with a small staff, how are you, how are you doing in terms of sustainability and profitability at the restaurant? Yeah. Well, so 2020, 2020 was, uh, a real eye-opener and a, <laughs> an interesting learning year, to say the least. So when March came, we closed on the 15th, paid everybody, and uh, told them that we don't know what the future will hold, but um, if we reopen, we'll call, right? And... We did reopen after four months of being closed. And we did the same thing that we're doing now. We worked with a small crew. We did, we did not take any government loans. 
um, because the rules on the PPP dictated that I had to bring back my entire staff and I had to be open. I think it was within like a month, two weeks, month, something like that. Right. And I was just like, that is insanity. I cannot, I, I, I need this money, but I cannot justify borrowing it under the rules the way they are written. And I called the lender and, and, and mine was from Square and I found out the bank that was holding the note and I called that bank and spoke to a banker in the PPP department and they said the rules have changed like four times in the last week and they change every day so I can't advise you in any way what the rules are now because they're probably going to be different tomorrow. Well, that's like a blank check for the government to do whatever they want. Ooh, yeah. So I was just a little too paranoid of our government in 2020 for some reason. I don't really know what it was. Yeah, no, I can't think. I can't see how you would think that. Come on. And uh, so <laughs> one morning I had, uh, well, a whole bunch of money in my business checking account that I had no idea it was coming to tell you the truth. Cause I did apply for the PPP, but I thought I was applying just to find out if I qualified. And then somebody would contact me and say, what do you want to borrow? Well, no, I was wrong. That form I filled out was the loan form and they just stuck the money in with no kind of call or anything. I and that's when I was going over the rules and I just was like, couldn't get the answers. So I sent it all back on the third day. Oh, nice. that, was big, that was a big mistake because about two weeks after that, they, they changed all the rules. Oh, man. See, I, t I, t I applied just because I, I was the opposite of you. They could just forgive it all. So I took, I, I actually did the emergency disaster loan. They haven't forgiven that. So I should have done the PPP, but I don't have staff and all the things that were going to be necessary. Yeah. And it might've been harder for you too. So, you know, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, they just stuck it in the account. Just boom. There it was. I was really lucky. My, my bookkeeper suggested to me, Oh, three or four years ago, to go escort and put myself on payroll. Well, because of that, I had benefits uh, for myself uh, the whole time I was out, which was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. They, they My accountant, on the other hand, at the end of the year, called me and goes, Didn't you take PPP? I thought you did. And I said, I sent it back. And they goes, what a shame. It would have all been forgiven. Don't say no this year. Right. And I, it wouldn't have worked anyway. So last year I had money in the bank. You know, I'm a business that's lucky enough to be able to put away some money every month. Or I, I was a business that was lucky enough to put away some money in a business savings every single month. So I had the money to continue it, it it was tight 
but it was enough to get going. And once we were open, there was enough cash flow that everybody got paid. We never ran out of that money. Then we had to close again. You know, then I was just like, so, so then when you opened up and you wanted to open up, you couldn't find anybody to work, as I understand it. From well, what I remember. not 2020. In 2020. No, 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 no. I meant 2021. Recently, uh, we had a really hard time. Um, uh, but I would say that we have been very fortunate. There was about two weeks we were open. That was, and it just wasn't working. Um, we were close. But uh, so we found another person and we really lucked out because I waited three days to respond to them for some reason. And, and most people would have found a job by then because everybody was offering the moon and back, right? Right. And uh, we found this young kid who was ready to go back to work. And he had always wanted to work here. And he's like a, one of those really good line cooks. That is a real rarity. Uh, we found another uh, woman line cook who is uh, had a pizza background. We were we really liked them and we hired them. We were just like, eh, they're not really a line cook. We'll see what happens. And they're great. So I've been very lucky that right now I'm fully staffed. And by fully staffed, I have four team members, my former man manager working as a team member and uh, helping me run, he runs the upstairs. And I just do all the prep work because, you know, there's just not enough money to hire a prep cook too right now. Right. But, you know, we'll see how the sales goes. We're starting to grow after the first two months, we're kind of, you know, poor, thank God. <laughs> well, actually the first two weeks, we were slammed like super slam. And then it calmed down a little. Then we found the new folks and now it's picking up again. Uh, so people are getting the word. A lot of people thought we were closed. Well, like, not only that, but there's probably a lot of people who want their vegan food without having to ask, do you have any vegan items on the menu? I mean, when you go to homegrown smoker, you know it. So yeah, well, uh, I will tell you in 2020, we have seen a boon of new vegan uh food carts and restaurants in Portland, just a ton of them. Yeah. And what do you think that's attributable to? I mean, it's uh, sort of an obvious question. I think the nosedive uh, in 2020. And one of the easiest ways to get up some cash flow going real quick is put together a food cart and a concept and start slinging some food. And that's what's happening. Right, I'm but they can sling any food, right? I'm not saying those particular people were driven by that, but you will have noticed how many food carts open, not just vegan food carts, but food carts in general in 2020. And food carts were kind of hurting a little bit. Right. That, right? A lot of people were getting out of food carts. Pods were closing. Well, now there's new pods, there's new carts again, because it's a, when the economy is down, it's an easy business to scrape, scrape up some money and get a cart going. 
Well, not only that, the, the market was right for it. I mean, and everybody was doing takeout. It was oh, the perfect right. storm for food carts. Perfect storm. Everything is takeout. Uh, everybody wanted takeout, you know. So it worked out really well, I think. And it seems to still be working. And some of those carts that opened just last year are already in brick and mortar. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a little bit of space out there. Almost. Oh, that's right. But that is mind blowing. And right. I was wondering if landlords have actually dropped uh, square footage rates on leases down. Oh, they must have. It's hard to believe just because they're landlords. Yeah, well, the big bad landlord. So, you know, it's interesting. I was just saying that when we started this podcast, people didn't know 2014 what a podcast was. When you started Homegrown Smoker, you were you were an outlier, man. So there were not a lot of people who were, I mean, there weren't as many people as there are now who were oh, familiar with vegan food. And then there, there certainly weren't as many people who were accepting it and liking it now, as there are now. No, it's the highest, uh, fastest growing uh, segment of food service right now is plant-based vegan foods. Absolutely. And do you think that's because uh, um, you all have gotten better at making it and making it more flavorful because that was your thing. Yeah. You, you, you went into your business and said, I'm going to make this stuff taste as close to non-vegan as I possibly can. Oh, yeah. That was totally my goal. It was totally selfishly motivated because even though I wanted to stop eating meat and I, and I did, I had sold meat for a living for 10 years and I had been a chef for you know 25 years before that. And, uh, I was tired of, it, you know, and, and my kids were both vegan. You know the story. And I just got converted by their demonish ways, their Satanist ways, because I am a Satanist now, making everything from Satan, which is wheat gluten. As a matter of fact, I just developed a really bomb-ass pastrami with a fat cap on it. I've added marbling to my beef roasts. And I don't know if you saw the photos, but it's I did. It's pretty cool. And you were comparing it to you were comparing it to like Katz's Deli. I mean, you didn't specifically say it, but you said this is right out of New York. So uh, well, today I had that pastrami sandwich of grilled onions, pastrami, yellow mustard, and white cheese with a pickle on the side and a side of coleslaw. Should have been potato salad, but I didn't have it. Right, but what do you call the pastrami? Because it's not pastrami. I call it pastrami. Oh, so pastrami. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to trying because I have to tell you, when I've been, and I haven't been in a long while to your place, uh, it's been too long. I can say that to most everybody now because of the pandemic. But, um, yeah. but uh, you know, I've really enjoyed your food, and I do not say that about vegan uh, over the time, you know, some chefs have served some dishes that I really liked. Uh, like but, Aaron, pardon me? Pardon me? I'm sorry. So, um, but it's not very often. Like I, I was at Costco last week and they had some banana chocolate uh, thing that was plant-based. I bought enough to fill up too much of my refrigerator. 
And uh, I took one taste of it and I said, I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going through 24 of these little containers. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have anybody to give it to right now, but. It is a lot of hit and miss. Yeah. So. Especially on the uh, dairy replacements. Yeah. A lot of hit and miss. So, so far my, uh, my favorite dairy replacement uh manufacturer is Miyoko's and if you haven't tried her stuff mm -hmm. well that's the one to try because if you don't like it you're not going to like anything right well uh, I her butter her butter is amazing uh to me you know and I haven't eaten butter in 12 plus years now uh but it tastes like butter it's and your hair looks so silky and smooth Thank you for noticing. Yeah, it looks My good. really wants me to cut it. And I'm not cutting it until I'm absolutely convinced that uh, we are past this whole thing. All right. So I am far from that position. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and welcome on board to the Right at the Fork family, a great new sponsor, Finex Cast Iron Cookware Company. Yes, we're delighted. And the reason we're delighted is because, we're, you know, having been in advertising for years, I just love the fact that we have a podcast and we have advertisers that we truly believe in. Anybody who's listening to the podcast knows some of the others that we talk about every week and they're near and dear to our hearts. Well, so is Finex because Court, I think you uh, agreed, and I did too. It's almost every day for the last few years, ever since we acquired our Finex cast iron skillets, that we've been using them. Daily. Every single day, there is a use in my family for our 12-inch cast iron pan. And they still look great, and they're easy to clean. And one of the things I like best about this cast iron, and I wasn't a big cast iron user before this, once in a while for some kind of casserole, but I'm frying on this every day, is the smooth surface. It is unlike anything you've ever seen in a cast iron skillet. And, of course, that's one of the features that caused Finex to bring cast iron to the fore in the cooking world in the last few years. It's not that it hasn't, cast iron hasn't been around for years, but now it's really become the thing and Finex is the premium for, as they say, Finex is built for those that believe details make the difference and that couldn't be a truer statement. One of the things I love about my uh, 12 inch skillet Chris is not only is it awesome and versatile you can do so many things with it it's like a work of art it's just a beautiful piece of iron and uh, to know that it was you know that Finex is based here in Portland and in fact I was just reading it takes 12 hours and 12 hands to create these beautiful pieces of again artwork and great cooking material yeah I leave mine right on my stovetop because it's no reason to put it away. No, it's great. I use it all the time. No I'm lazy. Yeah, no, no. I, I don't think you're lazy at all because I do the exact same thing. I want people when they walk into my kitchen to say, oh, wow, you have a Finex. Yeah, they're great. And there's a reason over this past year when I've been watching a lot of chefs like Gabriel Rucker and others doing their home cooking demonstrations on Instagram, you, you're always going to see them cooking in Finex. Yep. Uh, here might be the best thing about uh, when you purchase a Finex product is that all Finex products are guaranteed good forever. 
Can't beat that. Yep. Yeah, no, you can't beat that. And that's a pretty confident statement and business proposition for them to make. Mm-hmm. So find, a, f- find all their products at finexusa.com. You look like I might have remembered you back in uh, Darien, Connecticut. I, that was the segue. Um, yeah, I wanted to yeah. bring that up because the last, last time you were on the podcast, which was like episode number five, I think. If, I'm, if I recall correctly, you were early on. And thank you both times for taking the time to come and join us. But we didn't really go into the story. And I, you know, now that was 2014. Now everything's legal and my kids are older. So our little story on how we remet in Portland, Oregon, I think is, is amusing. And I don't know if you see it the same way I do, but it was hilarious. So, um if you don't mind, I'm going to recall it as best as possible. Oh, yeah. So, Your recall will be better than mine, dude. Well, yeah, but so I had a friend coming to visit me, and I think this was like 08 or 09. And so I didn't – so you we've – I saw you on Facebook, and I kind of knew you from high school, but you certainly – you got a lot of brothers and sisters, and so, you know, I knew the name, and I knew I'd probably met you along the way, probably in the smoking area at Darien High School, somewhere there. Oh, or, of course, Weed Beach, right? That's where we all hung out. <laughs> Aptly named, of course. And so um, when, I, when my friend was coming out, I wanted to get a little pot. And so I thought, you know, my friend Jeff, because I didn't know a lot of people here. I just moved here. My friend Jeff probably knows where to get some. So I contacted you. And of course, you know, I I hit the jackpot with, you know, who might be able to help me score a little weed. You had just a little bit on hand. And so when we met up, I I said to you, Jeff, I don't really remember you like my junior year ahead of me. I don't really remember you from junior and senior year of high school. And you said, well, that stands to reason because the last time I saw Derry in high school was through the window. I think it was, was it, did you tell me Mrs. Parker's class? Maybe, maybe not. Somebody's class. Because the, because the word had gotten out about somebody putting blotter acid in Dr. Robbins, parentheses, the vice principal. Oh, I remember that. His that coffee. Me, thank God. Oh, I thought that's what it was all this time. Oh, no, I did not put the acid in there. But one time when I was taking acid at Darien High School, a fine place to take a lot of drugs. In the, but you also have to qualify the year. This was early 70s, right? So Yeah, it, had to be, it was probably 73. Might be yeah. 74. 74. When they uh, asked me to... You know, if I could just stay home instead of coming to campus anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, uh, I looked at Mr. Colomb and I said, yeah, I, I guess I could do that. And then about six months later, um, I came back to school. And within about three weeks, they asked me if I would stay home again for That's a different story than I remember. I thought I, th- I thought you were part of the the contingent that did that put the acid in Dr. Robbins, who, by the way, just recently died uh, within the last uh, year. I think that was actually guys from the class ahead of my class, and you're in the class behind my class. Oh, right. Uh, who actually dosed him 
I once crawled out of a window. You remember the, uh, I forget what wing it was, but it went out towards the soccer fields right. uh, from the cafeteria. Yeah, that's the math wing. That was the why I thought it was Mrs. Parker. It probably was because <laughs> I was in math. And I started screaming at the teacher about chicken heads on their shoulder and literally crawled out the window. I remember those windows opened like right. that. Yeah. And I'm climbing out right in the middle of the class, screaming my head off about chicken heads, tripping my balls off. I think that was the day I did both acid and PCP. It's nice to know that that is that you're referring it to as the day singular, not the days that you were doing it. So, oh, well, <laughs> we'll just keep people guessing. Right. But you but so as I remember, you told me you were out that window and off to the West Coast. And that was it. That was that was it for your, your Darien days. Well, you know, I bounced back a lot. So I first came West, I think it was 70. I'm pretty sure it was 76, uh, the high centennial year. That was my senior year. And by the way, what you and I need, because other people are listening, this isn't just you and me, this conversation, <laughs> yeah. but people need to know that in Darien, Connecticut was a pretty wealthy town. And, it, and back then the signs of wealth were very different than they are now, right? People didn't have gates in front yeah. of their doors. And they, the best car they had was a Cadillac, maybe. And their sign of wealth was which country club you belong to. That yeah. was... That was it. But the thing was that a lot of kids' parents were flying all over the world. There were these big houses that all had bars in them. Like everybody had a, a this was this, this was the Mad Men era era. Every parent had a big bar in their house. So they would leave town and there was a party in Darien every single night. Every night. Where everybody would hang out. And so that's, that's why us Darienite kids from that era really kind of rely on each other because nobody else gets it. Yeah, well, it. It, was, it was a very different time. I mean, just, to, just in a very basic way, we had a smoking area in the high school, like right outside the door, yeah. where just all kinds of activity took place beyond nicotine smoking. Lots of interesting things. Yeah, uh, so... And, and then we had an open campus. We would go down to the beach in the middle of the day and just hang out and then get back for one class and then get back down there. So Sometimes it was- Sometimes we get back. <laughs> yeah, was, that's true. Uh, but it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. And um, you know, yeah, so I thought it was really interesting that when I wanted to find some some pot when I got back here, it was you <laughs> who was my Portland friend, you know, my new Portland friend. So it was kind of surprising. Yeah, well, it was kind of enough. I, I remembered you from two things baseball. I remember you loved baseball and you were always on a baseball team. I don't know why I remember that because. Yeah, how can you remember that if you weren't? Totally remember you being in a baseball uniform as a kid, Angelus on the back. I can still, I remember it right now and not because, you know, we've become friends again. Right. I just, I remembered it then. I was like, I don't think I had my, I don't think they were putting names on backs in those days. Oh, sure they did. 
Uh, no, the they weren't. Listen, I just posted a picture of, of my uniform, me in a uniform yesterday. It was VFW, right? And everybody's uniform looked different. The, the font was different on mine than it was on the kid behind me. Everything was different. They didn't post, they didn't put names on the backs of jerseys, but it's okay if you thought that you just identified me that way. So what was the second thing you remember? Uh, I forget now. Yeah, well, I think that's good. But I didn't remember baseball. I'm trying to remember what kind of car that you had. But I don't. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I do remember you from there, but you didn't go to the dead show that everybody went to on the bus. No, I wasn't into the dead. I went to one dead show in Hartford, and then I thought with my buddies like Dave Hammond, I, you know, I hope they're listening to this. So we're doing this podcast for them. I Dave did. Hammond. And Carl Kinnanen, and I'd love to find Carl Kinnanen, those guys. He was a great guy. Yeah, I've been in touch with Dave Hammond. But at any rate, so I went to the dead, and I really just couldn't deal with the jamming too much. But that's me, and, you know, a lot of people loved it. So uh, a lot of good music I did not see. So so that's a good question. I wanted to talk um, a little bit about just you and who you are so that when people go to homegrown smoker, they know who this guy is that started this. But so some of your most memorable, I mean, you're a big music, you love music and loved it from way back. That's what are some of your most memorable concerts from, from back in those days that you first went to? Uh, in New York city at the Schaefer music festival at the rink in central park. Those were definitely my most memorable concerts. Who played? Who well, played? Everybody played. Tickets were like $250, $350. I think the most expensive I ever paid there was $450. And that was probably like in 74 or 5. Uh, I saw so many bands there uh, Quicksilver, Mahavishnu Orchestra. King Crimson, uh, Poco, Jesus. Uh, Marshall Tucker. Had to be Marshall Tucker. I saw Marshall Tucker with the dead at uh, the old Giant Stadium. I can't remember the name of it now. Meadowlands, maybe? Meadowlands. Yeah, Meadowlands. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then you must have seen New Riders of the Purple Sage. They always played with the dead. Oh, yeah, I saw them. Many times, and I yeah. still go to see their only surviving member, David Nelson, play, who just started touring in California again since the pandemic. A lot of the bands are coming out of, of hiding. I was kind of surprised to see David Nelson because he's, he's a cancer survivor, but he came out, and uh, I'll probably be heading to a show soon. I'm still a little... I've watched a couple shows on online and, you know, I'm a little iffy about being in a crowd of, you know, quite a few thousand people and nobody wearing masks. I'm just iffy even being in crowds these days. I, I've, so I have so much oh, space around me out here. Yeah. I just don't like crowds because of, you know, mass shootings and shit like that. Anything can happen in a crowd. Yeah. Luckily you live in a place where that will hopefully never happen. Yeah, well, that's what I that's what I like to think. So um, when you go to shows now, are you still holding up big lighters at the end? I'm just curious as to whether you have to keep doing the same thing. 
sometimes I hold up my phone if I'm recording. Okay. And now it's legal. to do, Well, no, it may not be. When I first started going to concerts, I used to record them with a Sony tape deck. I had a, uh, a wooden broomstick handle and a piece of wood on top of it with two square Sony microphones from Realistic uh, Radio Shack. And I'd go to concerts and stand there and record them like this. And you were one of many. A lot of people who went to dead shows, that's what they did. Yeah, I did it at dead shows. I did it at almost every show I went to for a long time uh, until I started seeing so many other people doing it. It's like, you know, and I, and I started graduating into uh, better equipment, right? Uh, but I started seeing these guys who were just so into it. I was just like, fuck, I get to enjoy the show at last, you know, and I stopped doing it. Uh, and how much of it, how many times have you actually pulled those? Have you transferred them? Are you still listening to those recordings from those days? Do you, was it something you kept on, that you um, held on to? I did not, but my old buddy, uh, Blake Wood, I don't know if you remember Blake Wood. I remember Blake. God rest his soul. Uh, well, he was a real, he was a way bigger deadhead than I ever am. Really? Uh, well, I love the music, but I am not. And I know all the history and all that stuff. But, you know, I don't have like Grateful Dead paraphernalia all over my house and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm just but, looking at your background. It's hilarious. I've already done that. Yeah. Well, yeah, on my background, I did <laughs> You know, in my house, I used to have it out in my grow room, but I don't even have a grow room anymore. So, you know, but but my point was Blake was an archivist. Uh, back when we were kids, he always got all the tapes and traded them. And besides the ones I would record, but with all the other people recording, this is how it grew, right? Well, with the advent of computers, Blake started burning discs like a madman. And when he passed away, I inherited his collection of live music shows, not just Grateful Dead, but so many bands, probably 3,000 discs or more. Oh, my God. Each. each yeah. And it, it's incredible. I've got Hendrix shows. I've got uh, uh, Miles. I've got uh, Return to Forever. Uh, you know, just all these cool bands, mostly for bands that we were familiar with in the 70s, uh, especially as kids growing up in Darien, Connecticut, where uh, that jazz fusion was really happening back then, and we were all really into that. And then in the later 70s, you know, other bands like Aerosmith, and, uh, well, you know, they just started coming around. Well, I just... Had, I have so much music. I tried to give it to Kabu because Kabu had, because, you know, I was doing house cleaning during the pandemic, as so many of us have done, right? Time to get rid of crap, maybe do a, an unexpected remodel. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my goal was to get rid of that stuff because it was just taking up too much space and I was ruining it because I'm not an archivist and I would lose CDs and not know where to put them and stuff like that, right? So I called Kabu. They wouldn't take them because they already have just as extensive of a collection, right? And so they're just sitting in storage collecting dust right now. It's kind of a pity. 
I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go down there and grab some shows. A lot of live Zappa. Oh, live music is always. Those are the ones I saw. I bet you there were shows I was that I attended because I saw quite a bit of Zappa back then. Oh so, man, yeah, I know you did. I remember you did. So yeah. that's another thing I remembered about you, because Deadheads and Zappa freaks always argued music with each other <laughs> all the time. I don't know if you remember the Bennetts, but they were very big Zappa fans. Yeah. And I was very good friends with Taylor. I still am. Uh, but that was our thing. We both loved music, but we also loved to argue about the bands that we really liked. I picked up on Zappa. I, I guess it's all relative, but fairly late in the game so my when it, uh, apostrophe and uh, overnight sensation was oh, way way late yeah that's way yeah, i know it's way late way but it's also but there's also a shitload of stuff after that too you know oh, zoodle lures and guy, guy is a, a, a virtuoso right is that the right yeah. way yeah I, I saw him at university of arizona when i was in college and, you know, I love the guy. I worshipped him. But he's played an entire show and never looked at the audience once. And I was pissed. Mm -hmm. I was like, dude, you didn't even look at us. I don't think I said dude in those days. But um, he didn't even look up. And that's just because he's an eccentric. Jerry right. Garcia didn't look at people because he was so strung out, pissed off. He didn't want to look at them. <laughs> yeah. Did you, do you have any Janis Joplin? I used huge Joplin head. Uh, my story of Janice was uh, the first four albums. So I have three older brothers and we all lived in the same bedroom when we were kids above the garage. We all had our corner. So I was exposed to all this music way before any of my friends were right. I mean, my brother who's four years older than me, you know, was, he had a huge vinyl collection and a really nice stereo system. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to all those bands very early on. Uh, Janice is my experience from starting to get my own albums. And the first four records I bought with my own money, uh, Cry of Love, Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, their, their first one was, they're all sitting on the couch. Uh, Janis Joplin, Pearl. <laughs> Can't remember the fourth one. Uh, it was probably a dead album. I, I don't know. Yeah. Did, did you get that at the music box in Darien? Uh, that's the one that was over by the Grand Union, right? Right. Yeah, I got it there. <laughs> after, after music box. Johnny's. Johnny's. Right. Uh, music box, you know, sometimes we did the five finger discount there pretty often. I was just going to say, when you said the first you bought with your own money, that was, might have been a specific statement, uh, that yeah, it wasn't necessarily referring to gifts. Yeah. The money might've been actually my green army jacket. I wore everywhere that had. <laughs> I that I remember. That I remember. So. So I was going to say, I used to say the same thing, or I've always said the same thing. My first two records I bought with my own money were Jethro Tull, Aqualung. I came in a little after you. And Live Cream Volume 2. And then I just got heavily into Deep Purple after that. So they were a great band. I never saw them, never really got into them, but they were a very good band. So here's a, this is kind of, 
uh, interesting to think about. So 1972, eight of us got tickets to see Deep Purple at the Felt Forum in New York. So we're in eighth grade. So what? We're 14 years old. Yeah. We got, I think the tickets were like 1250 or something like that. So our parents were perfectly fine with us getting on a train, no cell phones, of course, in those days, getting on a train. You know, we all had our, you know, our patch stuffed in our pocket and all that stuff. Going to New York. And it's not a straight line from Grand Central Station to to uh, 33rd, where, you know, the Felt no. Forum was. Yeah, no. And, and so they were perfectly fine with us at 14 years old, going in there, have a good time, don't be too late, make sure, to, and you don't forget, remember, you had to catch the 1210, because if you didn't catch the 1210, that was the I last night. night. So um, anyway, I just look back and I think of how helicoptered, kids are now and we were just like see you later we'll my, you know they, they drop us off at the train station bye so and we probably hitchhiked to the train station by the way so there's that too yeah but we did live in a very privileged place yeah and i mean i i remember getting pulled over by cops being underage weed beer and they would just take it and say, right about, don't let me catch you doing this shit again. And then when they catch me doing it again, they just kind of say the same thing. Go home, dude. Why yeah, because you, cause your dad was probably tipping the police department. So um, I don't know if he was, but others were. From the town. If you were not from town or you were doing some serious mischief, like robbing something, then you would get in trouble. Right. Eating beer. Behind St. Luke's, they just take it, drink the beer, probably throw away the weed. Maybe oh, yeah, no. We had many times where they just took it away. And one time at Weed Beach, I actually vomited on the hood of the cop car when he came over and told us to something, yeah. and that was what came out of my mouth. Okay, I'll so, give you a good story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gordon Wood, Blake's brother, he drives a Volvo 122S, probably a wagon, probably from the, you know, mid sixties. I'm driving my mom's bright orange uh, Pinto. Maybe it was a Vega. I can't, I get those cars confused. Pretty similar. Vega. And uh, we're of course at a huge party uh, just past the turnoff for Weed Beach down close to the border where Stanford is at someone's house down there. Yeah. Big bonfire, like 15 kegs, uh, band. I don't even remember. That was the first party of the night, by the way. So at the around, oh, I don't know, around 2.30, we're, we're leaving. And we're, you know, you got to take the Boston Post Road as the main drag through town. So we're going through town. There's no cars. So we decide to drag race on the Boston Post Road. Right by the Darien Playhouse. Him in the correct lane and me in the wrong lane. Oh, God. About 80 miles an hour down the post road. He turns off to go down towards Five Mile River Road. I go to Mansfield and I turn off to go to Oak Crest. When I pull into the driveway, cop is right behind me. I am drunk and who knows what other substances are flowing through my system. I think I'm... Uh, 18 and I had come back east from my first trip west. 
I get out of the car. I look up the cop and I'm like, it's okay, officer. This is my house and I promise I'll never do it again. And I just walk in the house. Yeah. And, and Gordon, cop, pulled him over just in front of his house and he got a whole bunch of trouble with his dad and, you know, cop threatened him taking to jail and never went to jail. Never got a ticket. It, nothing happened to me. And this is that this is just why I say we grew up in the land of wealth and privilege. And we were lucky to do so as kids. Uh, you couldn't give me enough money to ever go live there again. Yeah, that's one and reason we're both out here. Anymore. We're as I, far away as we can get. Well, I went years ago when I was visiting. I had to go get post-corner pizza. That was always my thing. Go home, get post-corner pizza, grab some beer, go sit in my mom's den and sit down like I never left, right? <laughs> so I, my mom doesn't live there anymore, but I'm, I'm out east to visit the family. I go to Darien. I go to post-corner pizza. I get a round pizza uh, that's cut in triangles, and I'm eating it, and I'm going, "This, this where's my square deep dish Sicilian-style pizza? But you had to like, get a large. The small ones are just like, a, they're just cut in. It just was not good. Yeah. I was, so, I was so disappointed. And you know why? Because I went. When you were drunk all the time. I don't have a reason to come back to this damn town ever again. Yeah. <laughs> it was all because I had a bad experience at Post Corner. <laughs> I, I can understand that. And that's the first place I go to when I go back. And then I got to go up to my spots in New Haven. But Post Corner Pizza, that's it, man. And then, you know, they close Swanky Franks because you had to do that, too. The, the yeah, deep, oh, deep man, fried the, hot dogs. And uh, the diner. Driftwood diner? Driftwood diner with the, yeah. with the condoms, which they called rubbers in those days in the back. <laughs> when we were little kids, we'd just be like, yeah. <laughs> and we found out they made great water balloons. But, but think about this. As long as we're on this discussion and we're talking about food. So the drinking age was 18 then, right? So everybody was... You know, you could drink at 18, which meant that by 15, we were trying to get into bars and succeeding. So I was sitting, hanging out in Duffy's Tavern when I was 15 yeah. years yeah. old. Uh, backgammon down at Victoria Station. Right. Smoking weed up in the caboose. Yeah. The part, right. Yeah, it was a different time. So I, I don't know. And you remember Peter Massini, of course. Right. So I just talked to him the other day. Oh, good. So he's got the best job. Everybody, we should just, as long as we're, everybody's indulging us and in, uh, letting us talk about these folks. Peter, uh, what is it? What is his uh, thing? Big City Aerials. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got to look that up because what he does now is he's a commercial photographer in helicopters in New York City. It's really awesome. But so he got me, I, I don't know if he got me the job or we both worked at the Abbey restaurant, which was at the Holiday Inn. And I still tell people when, you know, I, this is the last time I worked in a restaurant was back then. It goes way back to when Nixon was in office the day, the night he resigned, I was working there and I can't remember the cook's name or the chef, whatever he was. That, 
But we, we all went out to his VW bus. This was perfect. His VW bus to listen to Nixon resign passing a joint in the VW, in the, in the bus. So that's a great memory. I'm really happy about that memory. Um, well, of all of them, that one's pretty cool. And, you know, once again, still starting in food service and still involved in food service to this day. Well, yeah, but in a very different capacity. So I have not actually worked in a restaurant since then. I was a salad guy. And so when I did a shitty job, my boss would call me salad boy. And now when I did a good job, he referred to me as a salad man. So uh, I got to say something to you because, you know, you say you haven't worked in a restaurant and I say, oh, that's just a bunch of crap. You have done so much for restaurants in our metropolitan area and for chefs and exposing them and other chefs while doing that for years and what you have done is a huge service to the food service industry in portland oregon and you are deeply involved in it and yeah you may not produce a paycheck from an actual restaurant uh but you probably should just yeah, well, I get listen. I listen. I haven't made a great living doing what I'm doing. It's okay. I'm getting older, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm going to I'm going to Brooklyn to, to tomorrow night with the folks from Andina to check out um, a uh, Nikkei restaurant, uh, a Peruvian Japanese uh, fusion restaurant with them. So, yeah, no, I, I so I have fun along the way. Oh, that is so awesome! Yeah, that'll yeah. be. Great. Are they doing yeah. seating at that restaurant? Pardon me? Are they doing seating at that restaurant? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You'll have so, a good So they they were kind enough to invite me to go and I guess I shouldn't be I'll let I'll let those words stand out there unto themselves because I really I'm not at liberty to talk about what Andina's doing, but they did hire an excellent chef, Al, uh, Alex Diestra, who I have known as Peruvian. And so they're moving towards for years. They were never really a chef based restaurant. So they're they're The pandemic hit and they're changing their tune. They've got a younger generation running the show over there now. Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment and talk about one of our favorite places to eat ringside steakhouse. Yeah, and Ringside, it seems like back to normal at Ringside, but it's even better than it used to be because now, in addition to indoor dining and takeout, you've got beautiful outdoor dining at Ringside, and they just set up a new little area. And uh, as they said yesterday, you can, you've got an old dog learning new tricks uh, at Ringside. So they have some really beautiful space outside, and of course the weather is conducive to that right now. Um, and their hours are Wednesday to Friday, 5 to 10 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, opening an hour earlier at 4. And you can order your to-go food uh, an hour before the start of business. So note those hours that I just men- mentioned, and you can pick it up until 9. When you do go to Ringside Steakhouse, if you're, gonna, if you're choosing to dine in, whether that be indoor or outdoor, you want to make those reservations. You can do that through the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com, or... I use the open table app, Chris, and that makes it super easy. You just hop on there, you find your time, you find your table, and you're good to go. It's it's a 30-second process at most to get yeah. a reservation at ringside. So uh, think about what you're doing in the next 30 seconds and think about how productive and delicious 
that can be. And again, if you missed any of the information we just covered, the website, again, is ringsidesteakhouse.com. Let me back up and thank you for saying that because I don't get... No one really identifies what I do and says, you're doing a great job, Chris. I don't get a lot of that. I get a little of it, but not in the way you said it. So I really appreciate that. It's, um, I try. I, I've always been considered myself a, um, a promoter, right? So that's what I really am. I'm a promoter because everybody, everybody, because everybody just refers to you as a critic. Oh, he's a restaurant critic. And it's like, I don't want to, it's the last thing I am as a critic. But, but I'm, I had to identify what I was, and that, that's a promoter. And, uh, yeah, I try to just showcase the awesome things that are happening in this town. And they have been for years. It's been incredible. That's a great segue because I wanted to talk to you about your early days in Portland before there was a real food scene here. What was this? Well, you moved here in when, 80, late 80s or mid 80s? Uh, summer of 79. I think I oh. hit here either in June, maybe July, 79. So what was the city like then in a general way? The best way that, well, here's here's why I fell in love with Portland. So I was living in Boulder and my best friend called me and he goes, you really need to come up here. Uh, I think you'll really like it. And I was already liking Boulder, but you know, he was my best friend. And I was like, "Eh, I'm gonna go to Portland. So I went to Portland. I had only been here passing through to go see shows in the past, and that was it. Uh, and when I got here, what really struck me was was a very small city, but an incredibly large town. And I loved that. And frankly, that's what I miss about Portland now. Uh, I, w- I can't say that about Portland anymore. The whole feel is completely different. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, for for old school Portlanders like me, I I do miss it, which is why I got so excited when uh, my restaurant space became available because it's it really is in one of the last old school neighborhoods of Portland that hasn't been completely torn down and replaced by you know no personality buildings, frankly. I guess that's progress, but, you know, I like streets like Hawthorne, for example. Uh, The way they are now or the way they were? Well, the way they were, but even still now, it's still got that old Portland charm in bits and pieces. And and those are the kind of streets I still love. Uh, Like, you don't see me on Division anymore, and I used to love Division, Mm-hmm. I used to live in that area for years. That was when I first moved here. I lived right at 12th and Hawthorne, right where the food carts are. There's a little house back there right behind. Uh, I don't know what the restaurant is now. I think it's a coffee shop, but it used to be called Parchman Farm and it was a jazz club. And my house was right behind it. What was I, your rent? Do you remember what your rent was? Well, I shared it with four people. I probably paid. Uh, no more than $150 a month for my room and board, right? Uh, My best deal in Portland, early Portland, was I lived off of Northwest Burnside on Southwest Vista 
two buildings up on the left, I had a bathroom, walk-in closet, living room, bedroom, kitchen, balcony, and fire escape, $155 a month, all utilities included. Very nice. You, you, couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't sign a 40-year lease on that? If I had stayed, I probably could still be there now. Here's how it was. There were old people living there when I lived there that had lived there for like 30 years. And some of them were paying under $100 a month rent. Because yeah. the landlord never raised people's rent. When new people moved in, he'd raise their rent. Right. Like mine. Mine was a whopping 155 bucks. The average rent in Portland back then for the same place was around 350, 400. So I was, you know, I was, I was living pretty high on the hog. And what were you doing then? Did you go right into restaurants then or what? Oh yeah, I, dude, I went into restaurants when I was 14 and I never left. Um, don't do that. Tell your kids, well, you tell your grandkids, if you ever have any, don't do that. Well, my, my son, one, one son lasted one day at a pizza place. That was it. It was too fast for him. And then the other guy lasted about three years. And I just tried to talk him into helping somebody out on a pop-up, and he just would have nothing to do with it. Just You, you have two very smart children. <laughs> you must have had good parenting. Well, I don't know. It's, you know, they like what they like. But, uh, well, actually, one, one son does work in food service in a, some capacity. Well, He's not cooking any longer. So I love food service, but it's a bear. And, frankly, after last year, yeah, it's difficult. My well, what do you think of the future? What do you think? How do you think the future is going to – how are we going to do? I mean, I personally, from a consumer standpoint, I'm just going to be in heaven sitting at a restaurant and ordering and have, not having to eat out of a box. I've said this too many times and not having to clean up. Um, that's important to me. And, and being able to order something on the fly. Hey, can I have another one of those, which you haven't been able to do for a year? That to me will be a treat. I don't know where it's going to go. I just don't know. It's the hardest call. Well, I can tell you, you know, my experience uh, of having to shut down twice and reopen twice. Opening a restaurant is never easy. It doesn't matter how many freaking times you've done it. It is a ton of work. And, uh, you know, I, I really liked it when I was a young chef you know, I'd get hired by these corporations and I'd go open their new concept and really dig it. And within a year, I'd be like, God, I'm so sick of this place. Where's the next place to go hang my hat, right? You know, I, I mean, I wasn't always year, this job to this job. I mean, I worked at McCormick and Schmicks for almost 10 years. Uh, you know, and I, I, but after them, I was about two to three years at every place I would go because I would get a little bit bored and cooped up. Well, that's still two to three years a long time in anywhere where you got to go every day and work your ass off. So what would you tell the 20-year-old Jeff? If you could tell 20-year-old Jeff who just moved to Portland, what would you? Go to college, God damn it, and learn something different. <laughs> uh, so, but I still have a real passion for cooking and creating, as you know. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the thing I've liked best about being a vegan chef is everything is new. It's, it's kind of like being a kid again, culinary wise, because I can't just take a cow and chop it up and come up with, you know, 20 different cuts of meat that I can present a hundred different ways. I have to make the cow. Then I can make the dish, right? Mm. It's kind of hard. Yeah. It takes a little thinking. And, and, you know, I watch other people and I look at a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a recipe follower, never have been. If it doesn't come out of my head, it's never going to get me. And sometimes that's a process, like up to two years. Like the first time I made vegan salami, I have to have that entire process 100% in my head before I go try it. So that when I go try it, hopefully the first time is the only time I ever have to figure it out. And I, I would say most of the time I'm, I'm pretty good at that, uh, like my beef. But now, so for about the past year, I've been wanting to figure out how do I do fat? You know, because beef has marbling and beef has fat cap. And I love making faux beef more than I like making faux anything. Right? Because I was a big meat eater when I was a meat eater. And I like beef the most. And so now I'm working on marbling techniques. And I literally just, even though I started thinking about it about a year, year and a half ago, I literally started putting it together just this last week. And so I was in a real rush making some beets. And I was like, I want to try some marbling. And I go and I, I grab some gluten, which is what all my stuff is made out of, right? And that's a really dense wheat flour. Uh, very high protein and I throw oil in there and, and some tofu in there and I just mash it all with my hands together and I put it on top of my beautiful red roast and I, I go wow that just looks like shh, you know bad word and, uh, so then I, I just take a step back as I was advised to do many times by Bob Weir and uh, kind of reevaluated what I was doing. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. I have to make an emulsification. I've got the right ingredients and the right idea, but you know, I've got to do it properly. So I just did that this week and I've come up with this emulsified fat, quotation marks. Thank you, Dr. Evil. Uh, and man, it's working really well. I'm so excited because now my roast beef, it which looked pretty darn like much like rare roast beef anyway, now it looks like real roast beef. And it is even doing one other thing, which I've been just really trying to figure out how to do it. It's actually uh, doing the same thing as marbling does. It's feeding fat into my roast, making it more tender and more palatable to the, to the bite. And so, so I'm really excited and really happy about that. I, and I would imagine that people know over the years how great your food is and how well you do it. Do you get a lot of people 
asking you to consult with them or people worse want free advice from you uh uh, the 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 wonderful term i want to pick your brain which makes me just cringe but uh, i get it all the time from all around the world uh i get a ton of people who want to do uh uh, don't have brain, no work, franchise. And uh, I'm just like, no, 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 no. And, and, you know, it's funny because I did have big plans to uh, expand uh, and, and take this places to other cities, take this concept to other cities, a little scaled back so that guys that aren't quite as psychotic as myself uh, could actually pull it off and not have to work as many hours as I do. Uh, but then the pandemic hit and, you know, that kind of just took that, uh, all away instantly. So why isn't that, why wouldn't that be your, uh, your exit plan? Just take, get it, get it to the point where you can franchise it, figure out how to do that and then step away. I know you got pride in what you do, but, you also, you baseball cash in on your well, skills and your talent. Well, yeah. So that is not, franchise wouldn't exactly be what I would like to do. Um, I would rather like build up a couple few locations in different cities and then just get rid of the whole package and walk away. Yeah, well, that's, to me, that's similar. Just find, get it to a certain point where you can sell it. Well, correct. But the problem with franchising is you're basically a landlord who tells people what they have to do and and you're taking money from them so you can tell them what to do. Yeah, no, okay. I I think your plan is better and it seems to mesh more with your mindset. Yeah, you know, it's just more about my politics than anything else. Right. You know, always getting in the way of me being financially successful. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not, but, you, you know... You're, you're, uh, it's okay. I'm still smiling. Yeah. So, uh, I guess we could dive into some other political stuff, but we've, I think this has been great. Let's, let's not fuck it up with politics. No, we had a wonderful, uh, four years, I think it was, of talking nothing but politics. And frankly, with me, it's been much longer than that. Yeah. And even though I am still very, very frustrated and I'm not all happy kumbaya like a lot of my friends are, uh, I have decided to, I'm not 100% out of it, but uh, you may have noticed that I'm not near as involved in it as as Oh, yeah. You were so involved. And so was I. But I had to just like shut Jeff down for a little while because I, you know, I, I... I was just like anybody. I was an anybody but Trump guy, and you obviously weren't. So, um, isn't it wonderful that Facebook has a button where you can stop following someone, but you don't offend them because they're not going to know? Right. Well, it's really a thirty-day button, and that's great for politics, right? So, last year you just hit that four times till you get to November, like December, and it's okay. I got booted by Facebook. Uh, two or three times for a month at a time. And I was just like, on the third time, I was actually intentionally doing it because, you know, I'm a social media junkie like almost everybody. 
And I was like, how do I take a break from this freaking thing? And, and Facebook actually gave me the solution. I have to do something naughty and get, <laughs> and get in trouble, but they take it away from me. And I'm like, fuck. Well, Jeff, that is absolutely full circle because it goes back to high school when they ask you to get the fuck out of school. Well, yeah. same, same thing. So, and, and you figure it out and you want it out. So I'm going to do something naughty and they're going to ask me to take off. So that is full circle. That's how we started this. So uh, that's pretty cool. It is. I've been asking you for quite a few. I never I never push anybody to do this podcast. There's too many people out there, but uh, quite a few times. And I know you've been really busy and I know you're busy now. And I asked you this on Father's Day, by the way. If you if you'd be kind enough to join me, so I really appreciate it. I two things we have to perhaps do this more often, but we have to get together. We're getting older, man, and so yeah, before yeah. the day comes where we can't do it. Yeah, I I am a a bit saddened that I didn't get to meet uh, your buddy and frankly my buddy Oakley uh, in person. But you know that's on me. It's definitely not on you or him. And uh, he's a great guy, and I just want to thank you right now again for sharing him with me. I I appreciate it. Listen, he had a great life. Yeah, and you know what? Life, dude. And thank you, Facebook, for allow and, and Instagram for allowing me. I got so many comments from people who never met him. Oh, and, yeah. and you know, you get to continue it with Kodak now. And, and oh I'm man, good. Kodak is just I like am so looking forward to this new venture i mean i've already been watching kodak of course but now it's his show yeah no he's he's a little melancholy in the house but when i get him out um oh, he's great but he's got he's got i'll tell you it was a one-year plan to have kodak and oakley overlap well so oakley lasted three years instead of one and um, his heart, Oakley's heart, is firmly embedded in Kodak and all, and me too. But you can, Oakley did such an incredible job teaching Kodak how to be a dog. And so, the best people. Yeah, you're right. You've said that so many times, and I can't agree more. I've always said research dollars should go into dog longevity and just let humans die when they're supposed to die and don't draw out their lives till they're just miserable the last five years of their lives. So anyway, all right, man, thank you so much. Um, come out sometime. You know, you used to live out here, so you know your way around. I sure do. So I miss my beautiful sick, another beautiful rent story, $600 a month for a, 2,200 square foot house overlooking Halem Bay in Wheeler. Oh, God. I that's drive, I drive through there. Goes. Every time I drive through Wheeler, I look to my left, and I just think that is one of the most beautiful scenes. And I've been a lot of beautiful places all over the world, but especially in Oregon. That is one of the most beautiful scenes you can have. The, the scene from right before you get into Wheeler and look left. And I'm sure if you're higher up, you see it all the time. And then the other one is when you're going over the bridge right before you get to Nehalem and you look right over the river and the mountain, that view is, is insane. So beautiful. That whole area is just beautiful. You live in paradise. I mean, you I absolutely know. do. Probably one of the best places in Oregon. 
And it's probably why I'm still alive and haven't had a heart attack and just dropped dead. So that's going to happen someday, maybe. I mean, hist- uh, genetically, that's what I'm predisposed to do. But I told myself a long time ago when I moved to Portland, um, when I can get down to the coast, uh, you know, I went through some depression years ago. When I can get down to the coast, I'm going to get healthier. I'm, I'm just happier and I'm 50 pounds lighter than I was the day I moved down here. And, uh, you know, life is pretty good. And uh, I have a girlfriend who wants to come visit me now. I didn't have that when I moved down either. So um, anyway, thank, but you need to come down and we have to stop talking, just talking about it and figure out how to do it. Bring your dogs so they can romp. So we'll find a day. Peace, brother. You too. Take care, my friend. Any podcast listeners because of this one? Pardon me. I hope you don't lose any listeners. Uh, well, we're gonna get some Darien people. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, they'll have a good time. Yeah. All right, okay, Peace. man. Take care. All right. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right